welcome to any of you who are guests. And uh, if you are new in some way, please come up and say hello. I always enjoy meeting you and talking to you, and so does my wife. Brethren, as I said last week in the sermon I gave on prophecy, shockwaves are going through the Middle East. And if you read the local paper, the Charlotte Observer, even today, the whole front section is just filled with that, literally, just filled with that, showing how this war is getting very, very bad. And, of course, it's causing even our former friends in the Arab world, major nations such as Egypt and major religious powers such as Saudi Arabia, who have been friendly, to turn aside. And they're beginning to also have massive demonstrations shouting and screaming against the United States, burning our flag. Some of you saw on television last night this massive demonstration uh, over in Baghdad, which our troops apparently permitted, tens of thousands of people shouting and screaming against America, against Israel, all that type of thing. It's literally sweeping through the Arab world. And it is going to bring about, as I said last week, the king of the south. These nations, no doubt, are beginning to feel impotent because they can't take on Israel one by one, and the United States and Britain are backing Israel, and they don't know what to do. But they did have a whole group of them back years ago under Gamal Abdel Nasser. There have been other times they've got together, and the Bible does talk about the king of the south, and that is no doubt building up very, very rapidly, and we need to watch that. That's going to be very exciting. Brethren, we really are on the gun lap of the work. I haven't said that before. People used to make fun of that. Mr. Armstrong said it, and a lot of time has elapsed, but at least I believe that we are on the gun lap, the last lap, you know, of the work of God. That used to be my specialty, running the mile. I was the best mile runner, high school mile runner in the state of Missouri back in 1947. I was told that by the University of Missouri track coach who gave me and offered me a scholarship to the university. Then I went on another year and didn't do quite as well, but still was in the top three or four in the state. We had a new guy come along and set a brand new state record <laughs> that had ever existed for many years. But I did do very well at the mile. When you run three laps, you work and work and drive, and then suddenly as you come around to the stadium, before the last lap, some of you know that you've been to track mates, they literally shoot the starting pistol again. Bang! And that gives you that extra energy to charge through that last lap, even though you're tired. And they call that the gun lap. And I think God is indicating to us through these circumstances that we are now beginning the gun lap of the work of God today. And we need to be excited about it. We need to be exhilarated about it, very frankly, much more than many of us are. These things do tend to sink up on us. As in the days of Noah, they were buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage and which is bad, but their minds are just on material things, and they weren't excited about what's happening. So these events are speeding up, and we are at the time of the end, and we need to really understand that and think about that in a number of ways. Back in Malachi, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, you turn to the last chapter, or the next to the last chapter of that book, and as I've said, that is kind of a bridge book, bridging from the Old Testament on over into the New Testament because of quite a number of statements that are made throughout this book. He says here, when he talks about the time of the end, as you'll see, he's discussing that end time, this end time, verse 16, Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, then, which means now, those who feared the eternal spoke to one another, and the eternal listened and heard them. So God does hear us when we talk about His work, 
when we talk about his purpose, when we talk about his plan, when we talk about the prophecies of the word of God and Christ's second coming and our need to be getting ready and the need to overcome in all the ways we need to do. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the eternal and who meditate on his name. God's name means his character, his office, everything he stands for. They shall be mine, says the eternal of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. You see, he leads them right on over into the kingdom of God by this statement, leading us right up to that point. And I will spare them. He's coming to the time of the great tribulation. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. God tells his servants back in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, to discern between the good and the evil. And we're to learn to do that, to discern and to really want to get as close to God's mind and as close to God's will as we can. And yet an awful lot of God's people today in our church and the other branches of the church of God, we're in a Laodicean era. We're in the laid back era. Take it easy. You don't get excited about anything type of era. And we water things down. We don't want to get as close to God as we possibly can. But God tells us we'd better learn to do that. Discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. We're to learn that, brethren, in many, many ways. In Philippians, the second chapter, turn with me there if you would, Philippians chapter 2 in your New Testament, God tells us here through the Apostle Paul beginning in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Try to have your mind on serving others, not just trying to think, think, you know, lay up treasure and see what you can get and so all this kind of thing. That's what we do in this society, our materialistic society. But God says, don't do that. Let each of you look out for not only for his own interests. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're to have in every way the mind of Christ. And we're to grow in the mind of Christ. And we're to want to grow in the mind of Christ. Not say, well, that's too much and I don't need that and that might be too strict or I might have some problem if I do that. No, we're going to be blessed forever and ever and ever if we have the mind of Christ. Let this mind, this attitude, this approach be in you, which was in Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself. As I've explained, that expression made himself of no reputation comes from the Greek word kenosis, the emptying. Christ emptied himself, he who had been with God from eternity, he who was the word, the divine spokesman. He's the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. He emptied himself of the tremendous glory and the power and the majesty that he had and came down and died as a human being after being beaten and cursed. Come on down from the cross if you can, if you're the Son of God. And they yelled and cursed him and all that kind of thing, beat up on him, spit on him, as you know, during that time of torture before his death. He emptied himself and came in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross, one of the most slow, agonizing, ignominious deaths that has ever been devised by perverted human beings under the influence of the devil. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. 
because he was willing to go all out to serve God. God exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow, those in heaven, those in earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's our Lord. He's our master. He's our boss. He's our example to the glory of God the Father. So, brethren, we need to have that attitude to go all out like Christ did, to empty ourselves like Christ did, to have the mind of Christ in every possible way. That is very important. And as we get into this subject, I want to remind you of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, something we often refer to, so I'm not going to read it or turn to it. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You all know that verse I trust. Christ is the same. His basic approach is the same. He doesn't change all around in every way. He had certain laws temporarily, ritualistic laws, but his basic approach has always been the same to human beings, that they ought to obey him, keep his laws, keep his statutes, keep that way of life, put God and God's kingdom and God's work first. That's always been the same, not changed at all, ever. 1 Corinthians 10.4, ancient Israel went through the sea and was baptized they were baptized into Moses in the sea, and they were baptized into that rock, it says. And that rock was Christ. Christ was the rock, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament. He's the one who said, as I said, let there be light. He's the one who was the God of Abraham. He's the one who was the God of Moses. He's the one who led them through the Red Sea. That rock was Christ. So all these things came from him. Luke chapter 14 tells us another facet of our Christian lives, again, that we give you, and I won't read it all, but I want to just put these thoughts in your mind as part of the mind of Christ. Luke chapter 14, beginning verse 25, great multitudes went with Christ, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate or love less, as the Greek word means, love less, it's a comparative term, as the scholars say, love less by comparison, his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, his own life. You've got to love your own life less than that, that God and Christ because they made you. Everything you have came from God. He is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. You think your wife is beautiful, that beauty came from God. You think your child are talented, that talent came from God. The breath of air you breathe came from God. The water you drank came from God. The food you ate came from God. The earth you walk upon came from God. In Him we live and move and have our being. And we need to constantly be aware of that. And so we need to understand that. We love Him first. And His own life also. We've got to love God more than our own lives. Otherwise, He cannot be my disciple. And then we've got to learn to count the cost before we set out to be a Christian. He says in verse 33, So likewise, whoever does not forsake all that he has, total surrender, my life is your life. Everything I have is yours, God. You are my God, my King, my Creator. And you I live and move and have my being. This has got to be our attitude, brethren, and more and more of that way as we approach the end of this age and the end of our lives physically. And we do need to understand that and mean that. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, if we're all weak and lay it as sin and watered down, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the manure pile. Not good for the dunghill even, he says, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Think about those things. 
think about how we ought to go all out for God. And that is the kind of Christian God requires. That is the kind of being. That is the kind of character God requires. He can't give us glory and power and majesty and put us over cities and whole nations and perhaps later over whole planets and throughout the universe if he doesn't know that we're all out for God. We're totally surrendered to God and we mean it. We're not watering things down. We're not looking for the loose brick. We're not trying to get out of what he said in some way. Try to reason our way around it. God does not want that kind of person in his kingdom, frankly. Most of you know that. That's plain when you put it that way. But when you come down to personal things, such as divorce and remarriage, or when it comes down to perhaps certain even laws of health, now they're not as important, but certain things that are in God's Word, or when it comes down to more mundane things, well, yeah, but, people think, and they try to reason their way around if they can. But God wants us, brethren, to go above and beyond what He letter says in the, in the letter of the law. Most of you know that. If you have our God and you wanted people in an eternal kingdom giving them power and glory forever, of course you would want that. You would want someone else in your kingdom if they had this kind of a watered-down attitude. No, you wouldn't. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24. Again, a scripture that I quite often use, I guess more than the other ministers, which is fine. They have their favorites, but this is an unusual scripture that to me that we don't often use or didn't use in the past. Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you give up and quit when the going gets tough, you're in trouble. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Remember that. Or to stand up and be men. Stand up and acquit yourselves like men, the Apostle Paul said. And real, real men and real Christian women with courage and guts and, and you know, dedication. Deliver those who are drawn toward death. Hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. The greatest time of adversity, the greatest time of slaughter in human history is fast approaching. Jesus said unless he intervened, no human life would be left alive. We would commit cosmicide, blast all humanity off this planet. If you say, surely we did not know it, we of all people can't say that. We in God's church do know it. We've seen the scriptures and we understand the prophecies overall. I think most of you understand the big picture. You need to be educated more on the details, but most of us recognize, yes, God is going to intervene. This world is going to blow itself up unless God comes back, unless he sets up his kingdom, because there's going to be the great tribulation otherwise, and the tribulation would mean not end properly unless God had an elect. For the elect's sake, he cuts those days short. If you say, surely we did not know it, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? And he who keeps your soul, does he not know it? Doesn't he recognize that you do know better? You do know what you ought to do? And will he not render to each man according to his works? As it is in the King James or his deeds in the New King James, according to what you do, according to the way you live your life, and according to the way you serve in God's work and so on. That's powerful. We need to think about that. We are in the time of the end. We're in the gun lap. We're in a crusade to get this message all over the earth. How are we going to do that? We can't have half-hearted people dragging their feet, making excuses and expect to get the job done. And God doesn't appreciate that kind of individual. It's not that I don't. I love all of you. But I'm trying to help you as human beings get in God's kingdom. I hope you as human beings can have a high reward in God's kingdom. Every one of you. In Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ said in verse 19, 
fact, he commanded us, he states that as an instruction, a command, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. A command from the Son of God, don't accumulate great big riches and try to sit on your riches and all that kind of thing, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You are accumulating treasure, tremendous reward from God that will last you throughout all eternity with no end if you seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness and put your being in His work in every possible way. He shows throughout, of course, the whole Bible. So don't do that, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, where your money is, there will your heart be also. Jesus Christ said that. You say, well, Christ is butting into my business. Oh, really? Whose air are you breathing? You're breathing God's air. Christ is God. Whose earth are you walking on? You're walking on God's earth. Whose food are you eating? You're eating God's food. He made it all. Who gives you life and breath and everything you have? God does. So we really need to understand and think of it more from that point of view and realize that our treasure must be in God's work more than a lot of people recognize today. Mr. Herbert Armstrong said many times, brethren, and I'm sure Mr. and Mrs. Apartian who are sitting here and perhaps some of the other old time will remembered. I've heard him say that perhaps 20 or 40 times. He said, brethren, I found through the years that to the degree people's hearts are in God's work, giving generously of their tithes and offerings, their prayers in the work, their help is for us if we need something, of working with newsstand programs or other things, whatever it is, part-time help, part help getting out the co-worker letters or other things we call them to do, and so on. To the degree that people's hearts are in God's work, their attitude is closer to God. It determines and it shows as a definite barometer he found over decades of their spiritual attitude. And brethren, I have found the same thing. I didn't always understand it as, as much in the past. I really didn't. I've sat out there just like you for many years, for three or four years, just as a normal member, tithe-paying, even who had summer jobs and student jobs and all this. Then later I was a young minister getting the magnificent salary of $65 a week as an evangelist. And all my friends back in Joplin were making more than I was. That was fine. We didn't get our checks. We had to go to Vern Matson, the business manager, and beg for our checks because the money was always short. Mr. Armstrong was always keeping us right up to here, which I guess was good, <laughs> getting on more radio stations, later more television stations, keeping the work growing and so on. But we had to have our hearts in God's work, and most of us did at that time, missing meals quite often in the early days as we ate in the Mayfair basement and didn't have enough food. And Mrs. Elliott would bring us down a salad, and sometimes Mr. and Mrs. Hay, Dr. Hay's mother, would send us some fresh eggs, turkey eggs, and uh, some uh, uh, cheese and various things like that that helped us get through a few more days and other things of that sort kept us going. And we never starved. I could have called home. My sister knows my parents would have helped me if I was crying out. I was too proud in a sense. I thought, I'm on my own. I'm a man. I'm out here. They don't want me here. I'm going to make it work. And we did make it work. None of us cried out to home for help. At any rate, God always took care of us. But I'll tell you, brethren, to the degree that people's hearts are in God's work, they're going to be spiritually blessed. And that is very true. Please think about that. 
Back in Leviticus chapter 26, I want to review again something we've talked about in recent months here, a principle that Mr. Ogwin even focused our mind on more deeply. We had understood it, but just the emphasis he put on in a certain way was unusual and very helpful. As you know, in the first several verses of this prophecy, Leviticus chapter 26, he says, If you walk in my statutes, what are God's statutes? Well, the holy days, circumcision, tithing. We keep Passover in a different way. We are spiritually circumcised today by being converted. You don't have to be physically circumcised, but spiritually all of us do, men and women. Tithing is the same, except it's given to God's priesthood rather than the Levites. But the statutes remain. The exact way of carrying them out may vary. But he tells us here, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then everything will work for good. And he goes on to describe. He'll give you rain in due season, all the others. But, verse 14, if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, he says specifically, or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my command, my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will appoint terror over you. As I pointed out, terrorism, first thing that happened, 9-11. Then he describes, of course, drought and famine, disease epidemics, and all the other things that are going to start happening and are starting to happen in vast parts of the earth and certainly going to affect our people. So God tells us that if we despise his statutes and his commandments, and we have legislators, we have various governors, we have various people in the, in the executive branch of the federal government and the Congress, various members of even the United States Supreme Court that show by their actions that they despise God's law. They despise God's statutes. They just soon throw them in the wastebasket and let men marry men. And all the rest of it, as you know, we're getting into that more and more, which is damnable before God, and He's going to begin to deal with us. But this is an important thing to recognize. There's another statute that we often leave out and forget, brethren, that's very, very important. And we need to review that from time to time and be sure we recognize how important it is, not just you, brethren, here, but you, brethren, around the world. I'm talking to all of you. This is vitally important as we approach the end of this age. We have a crusade. We have a job to do. We have an opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven forever if we reach out to this world. And right now we're laying a wonderful foundation here in God's work in Charlotte. We really are. We have a wonderful team of Mr. Dick Ames over the editorial and so on. We have, and media, we have a wonderful team under Mr. Winnale, Dr. Winnale and church administration and the business area under Mr. Crockett and other very fine people without naming everybody, but under those three operations directors. A wonderful team of dedicated men and women here at headquarters. So many of you are on that team. And others of you know the whole team that's right here. And God has given us perhaps the best team we've ever had. And I've been in the work about 57 years starting next month. I'll say I've been here 57 years when I first came to Ambassador College in September 1949. I've never seen a team to the degree that we have here that are basically clean, pure, dedicated, tried and tested in that way. I mean that. I could describe the problems in the past. That's not my point, but I could do that in great detail. I knew those men very, very well. Mr. Armstrong was a wonderful man, but he often had those who were trying to hurt him, water things down, overthrow him, and all that kind of thing all along the way. 
But so far, since we've had a very wonderful team, we've established and we're very grateful. We're beginning to reach out. We're beginning to get more prospective members than ever, more go-tos. And uh, Mrs. Lori Lyons has kept me abreast of that, and I'm very grateful for that. So grateful that some more of these people are calling in, writing in continually, talking about coming to church than we have ever had in the history of the global church or living church of God. And now we're starting a leadership training program for the men and the women and the young people. The Dr. Winnell, the Doctors Winnell, paradox. <laughs> Dr. Doug and Dr. Scott Winnell have put together with the help of others. Very grateful for that. And then a ministerial training program that's coming along, bringing more more leaders, more ministers. And we're going to need them, brethren, but we're going to need all kinds of things to go on the additional stations to get the mailing list way, way up for Tomorrow's World magazine all over this world and all the other things we need to do. God has called us to do that. Let's not assume we don't know and understand the age we're in. We do know. We do need to understand. And we need to be sure that we're zealous about that. And we don't water down God's laws or God's statutes. So here throughout the book of Leviticus, if you turn back, you'll see in chapter 16, he starts naming the statutes. Chapter 16, verse 29, this should be a statute forever. And then he comes along and every now and then says, these are the statutes and judgments. Chapter 18. Verse 5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. And he keeps naming them and some of the judgments, some of the ordinances, the rituals were done away, but the basic statutes were not done away. And so near the end of this book, Leviticus 26, we just read, turn to chapter 27. He says here in verse 30, Leviticus 27, verse 30, and all the tithe of the land whether the seed of the land or fruit of the tree is the Lord's, it is holy to the eternal. It's not holy to you, it is holy to God. As you know, a tithe means a tenth, and that is holy to God. That is one of God's statutes. Brethren, my topic today, as you perhaps realize by now, is the law of tithing mandatory today. Is tithing mandatory today? Many of God's people don't seem to understand that. Many people are trying to water that down in various ways and get around it to their own hurt. And we have thousands of you out there that are relatively new in God's church and you may not have heard anything about it. You may not understand it. We do need to understand very much all of us. Turn to Malachi chapter 3 once again. Malachi, where we were, chapter 3. And a lot of you older brethren know where I'm turning, of course. But I'm going to go back a little further in the verses than we normally do to set the stage. This is a, a transitional book from the Old to the New Testament. It's talking to us today. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, God says, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Me, who is speaking here. The Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ is speaking. He sent John the Baptist to prepare the way before him. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, which he did in his first coming. Even the messenger of the covenant, he brought the new covenant and so on. And he was going to purify the sons of Levi, some even then and far more later, as this is a book that goes right on in prophecy, has a dual meaning. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem as you see, he's going to purify the sons of Levi, and that won't be done fully until, of course, Christ comes again. So verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant, 
to the eternal as in the days of old as in former days. And I will come near for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against uh, perjurers, and against those who exploit wage earners and widows and the fatherless. Some of these big shot business people, as you know, the chief executive officers give themselves five or ten or 105 or 10 or 25 million dollars a year and great big bonuses and they paid themselves two or three hundred times more than the average member of their corporation earns. They're just soaking it up and they find various strategies to get around paying their taxes. And most government officials know that. They devise these strategies and they have these big shot lawyers to take advantage. And the poor people get poor. If you read the newspapers, this is happening in our land. The poor people are getting poorer and the rich people are getting richer. And these people are practicing this, extorting from the poor and grinding down the widows and the fatherless and against those who turn away an alien where we're persecuting sometimes the aliens who are among us and we ought not do that. There are illegal aliens who perhaps should not be here, but it's not our job to run them out. Once they're here, we've got to treat them with love as fellow human beings and leave that up to God and the government to take care of the other part. Because they do not fear me, says the Eternal, for I am the Eternal. I do not change. Again, Christ, Hebrews 13, 8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Christ is talking here, as you see a little bit earlier here, about uh, uh, sorcerers about adulterers, about perjurers, and those who grind others down because they don't fear God. He says, I don't change, therefore you're not consumed. O sons of Jacob, who's he talking to? Just the Jews? No, all the sons of Jacob, the whole house of Israel. Yet from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you. But you say, in what way shall we return? And now God tells them, And he's also talking very directly to us. This is a bridge book bridging right over into the New Testament. And he's putting this sin of stealing from God and not giving our full tithe and offering in the same category as the adulterers and the perjurers and others like that. He puts it right there in this context. Read it. That's where it is. This is the mind of God. And I'm telling you about it. But I am the eternal. I do not change, he says. Return to me. In what way? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Would you dare rob the God that gives you life and breath? Yet some of you would, right, in this church, here in this room, and in the various rooms around the nation, around the world. Some are doing that. They rob God. They have a huge income from whatever way, and yet they rob God. That's the truth. Well, you you have robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? in tithes and, get it, brethren, and offerings. Now, we in recent years have allowed the brethren, we've said primarily the poor poor people who have an unusual need to tithe on the net income after taxes. Through the years, most of us have tithed on the adjusted gross income. That is the income that we have after paying our business expense or whatever. You know, if a man has gets $10 million through his cash register in his store, he doesn't tithe on all that because he has to pay for the rent of the store and all the goods in the store and everything else. That's not profit. But all, most of our brethren who are really dedicated tithe on the adjusted gross income, the full income they have. They don't try to grind it down to the lowest possible figure they can possibly come up with and get out of tithing. 
Does that get you ahead with God, that attitude? No, it doesn't. You know that. But a lot of people are doing that, and then some aren't even on tithing on that. They're just simply not tithing at all. And you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. Your God tells you, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And he's speaking, of course, primarily to the peoples of Israel. We ought to know. We used to call ourselves a Christian nation. And in the United States, you had millions of people back in the 1700s and 1800 people were, were tithing. Many great business managers, men, such as Colgate, who had the Colgate Palm Olive Company and manufactured toothpaste, and many others I've read it, would practice tithing. And they were blessed for that, of course. Even this whole nation, behold, or bring in, he says, all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Prove me now in this, says the Eternal, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and I will pour you out such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. If the whole nation did that, God would do that. I'll be very open with you. I'm not sure he'll make every one of us millionaires individually if the whole nation's going wrong, but he certainly will take care of us. The principle is there. He's going to take care of us individually. I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. Some of you older brethren have read Mr. Armstrong's article about the man who could not afford to tithe. And he was up in Oregon, and I worked for him part, uh, for a few weeks one summer. And, of course, he acknowledged this, by the way. He was tithing to God, and they had this terrible uh, flooding along the river there. I forget the name of the river. And they were raising peppermint. And I was hoeing in his mint field for a while until I could get out of there. I was carnal. I didn't like to hoe mint. I thought uh, monkeys ought to do that. So I got myself working in the woods, which I thought was more heroic and made more money. But nevertheless, he was a nice man, Sardis man, never came along fully with Mr. Armstrong, but did believe in tithing and helped Mr. Armstrong for a while. And when this flood came, all his neighbors had their peppermint wiped out, their whole crop. But somehow the, the river took a strange turn and his field was not even affected, was not even affected. And God protected him the only man in the whole community who was tithing and was part of the church of God. So many examples like that I've learned of all through the years, brethren. I have, and a lot of you have too, you older brethren. You know God will do that for us if our heart is right and if we go all out. If we tithe grudgingly and our heart is not in it, we cannot expect God to be loving with us if we're grudging with Him. As you know, God loves a cheerful giver. He tells us back in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God loves a cheerful giver and God wants us to give our tithes and offerings or actually to pay our tithe. It's not something we're giving Him. We owe Him. He is the governor of the universe. This is His earth, His air, His water and we're paying Him just a tiny bit of rent, so to speak, and good for us too. God doesn't need it personally. You know that. But He teaches us this thing to remind us of who He is and of our obligation to our Creator. Just like it doesn't help God for us to rest on the Sabbath, God doesn't necessarily feel more refreshed just because you rest on the Sabbath. He's a spirit being. He doesn't get tired, but it does good for you. So He gives you that, just like He gives tithing for us. It's a blessing, not a curse, when we understand it. And so He talks about this, that He will rebuke the devourer and protect us and protect our crops and so on. So God will bless the tither, and God says a person who does not tithe is stealing from his very creator. 
A man is robbing God. That's what God's word said. If he fails to give or to pay his tithes and to give offerings beside. Turn to Ezekiel, if you would, brethren. This is just an example here again of the mind of God. And I think it's important we understand these principles, however. It's talking throughout this last eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel 44. Ezekiel 44, he's talking about things that are going to happen in tomorrow's world here on this earth, no doubt in the millennium and perhaps the great white throne judgment period and about what his people will do when the full priesthood and everything is reestablished. And we can't do everything specifically because that's not all been done, but the principles are here, if you see. Ezekiel 44, this again is part of the mind of God. Verse 21, No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. They shall not take his wife a widow or divorced woman, but shall take a virgin of the descendants of the house of Israel and or widows of priests when they marry, when they're able to do that, and the priesthood is reestablished. And they shall teach my people... Notice, brethren, the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. We just read that, didn't we, back in Malachi. The people of God have got to learn to discern between the holy and the unholy and have the mind of God in all of that. And you're supposed to have the mind of God. And as God's servant today, I'm held accountable as God's priests were then to teach you to discern the mind of God so you can be in God's kingdom and so you can have a good position in God's kingdom, not barely make your way in and be a doorkeeper or whatever. And if you try too hard to, to, to water things down, you won't be there at all. You just won't be there at all if that's your attitude. In controversy, they shall stand as judges. You see, the priests, and that's what we're training to be, you and me, and that's what God's ministers are in effect today. The human leaders or priests in the church of God judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes. Yes, they're going to keep the holy days in tomorrow's world and they're going to practice tithing. That's one of the statutes that's clearly indicated all the way through the Bible. It's not just part of the old covenant. As we'll see, it was given way back before there was any old covenant. It's part of the mind of God. They'll keep God's statutes and all my appointed meetings and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. So this is the attitude that God has and what he wants his faithful priests, his faithful ministers to do, telling us what will be done in tomorrow's world. Well, again, why tithing? I've already explained. Because tithing points us and puts in our minds thoroughly the realization that there is a great God in whom we live and move and have our being. And we're here on His earth, eating His food, drinking His water, breathing His air. And we pay, not give, we pay our tithe to God. And above that, we're commanded to give offerings. And God tells us again and to give to be generous in the way we give offerings. And brethren, then beside that, of course, God has a work among human beings. In ancient times, in the Levitical priesthood, the priests had to give up growing crops and doing the other things and raising cattle, and this was their this was their livelihood. Today, of course, God has a ministry, and today the ministers probably work much harder than most of the priests did back there, frankly, 
because they would, you know, have certain days when they'd offer a lot of animals and other days not too much or just kind of watch over the, the uh, temple and so on. Today, we have ministers even up in their 70s, such as Mr. Bob League over in, uh, over in uh, Nashville, who's way up just a couple of years younger than me, and he's driving from Nashville over way over to Chattanooga and up to Crossville and way down here and way over there. These men are old. They're tired. But they have to push themselves and drive themselves. Some of the young people, when they see me come in a little late or leave a little early or look tired, they say, well, Mr. Meredith ought to work every bit as hard as we do. Well, I try to. And I did work a lot harder than most of you. I mean that. And I'm not kidding. When I was your age. But now that I'm 76, I have slowed up a little bit. Not very much. <laughs> and my wife said, no, not very much. I push myself about as hard as I can go without getting a heart attack. I'm not perfect in that now. God knows I could do a little more and I should do more. But we're trying. And I think most of you realize that. We're trying to go all out to get this work done. And so today the tithes and offerings do not pay primarily for our salaries. Today the tithes and offerings, as Mr. Crockett showed you in the latest good news, I guess that tomorrow... Uh, Living Church, is that already out? I think that's out showing you the breakdown of the finances. The vast majority of it, of course, goes into various parts of God's work. We have some going into ties in the, you know, the uh, uh, salaries, but a lot of it goes into the field ministry to, buy, to pay for the church halls, to pay for the gas and oil and all the expenses of these ministers all over the world, and, of course, to go into television to go into radio, to go into the printing press, to print Tomorrow's World magazine, to print the Living Church News. Look at it. That's where most of the money goes. And we're trying our best to use the money to glorify God. We don't have any big G5 mag, uh, airplane for me. It would cost about $47 million if we did. It's gone up so much. We're not going to have that. You know, we don't try to spend great huge amounts of money on various things in the sense that worldwide did. We have no house of God with imported onyx from Italy and other things from all over the world. We probably never will. We hope to build an addition over here. Some of you know we're a building. But believe me, it's not going to be like the house of God. We'd like it for it to be, but it won't be. We don't have the money. The money's going out there. It's going into God's work around the world. And God reward us and God reward you if your heart is in that. Your prayers are in that. Your tithes and offerings and generous offerings are in that. And your service, when you get a chance to help in various ways, above tithes and offerings is in that. That's what God wants. And that's what God will bless us for forever if we will do that. So God has always required a tenth because he is the creator of all. And because there is a work to be done, as in ancient times, and even more so today. Now let's go way back before the old covenant. Because, brethren, there have been many articles written and there have been whole books written and I have some of them. Mr. Crockett gave me one even the other day written by one of my former students. <laughs> I was not his only teacher, by the way, as I keep repeating. He had several other teachers, but he jumped the track. I remember way back during the uh, 70s why he left the church because we didn't change real quick on, on uh, Pentecost and DNR. And so then a few weeks later, we did change on both of those. And one of our leaders called him and he said, well, George, his name was not George. I'm not trying to identify him. We said, George, now we've changed. Are you coming back? Well, no, no, he didn't come back. He never came back to the church. He knew it was the church. He was in it. 
but he did not come back. And in addition to that, as he went off into these great new truths where he wrote this whole book against God's law and against God's commandments, he took advantage of the great freedom and he divorced his wife, the wife of his youth, through whom he'd had three or four children. He just got rid of her and got himself a new model. How convenient. God's law's done away. My wife's done away. I'm free. <laughs> He's not living. He's several years younger than me. I don't say God killed him, but he's not here. But at any rate, people like that have come and gone, and they'll write against God's law. They'll write against tithing, and God does not bless them. God never blessed his work. He tried to start a competing work. He did practically nothing except confuse a few people who were willing to be confused on the fringe of God's work. But they always try to say, well, the tithe was just for grain, or the tithe was for grain, or every tenth cow, or this and that, and so Oh, is that so? Is that so? All right, let's turn back here to the beginning of tithing. Genesis chapter 14. This is the mind of God. Who was Abraham? I don't have time to read it now, but put this in your notes. Read carefully Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Abraham is called about three times there the father of the faithful. Abraham was the father of the faithful. Who was the father in a spiritual sense? The father's one who would be the pioneer like our founding fathers, you know, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Adams, and so forth, founding this nation, setting us an example, getting things going. Abraham is looked upon as a type of God the father who was willing to give himself, give his son, willing to sacrifice Isaac, who was a type of Christ, as you know. Abraham was like a father, and his example is very important and several different issues, and here's one of them. So in chapter 14, we read how these uh, pagan uh, kings uh, captured some of Abraham's allies here, pagan neighbors at least, but he was friendly with, and uh, they took his own nephew uh, a prisoner. And verse 14, now when Abram, or Abram as his name was then, heard that his brother, that is his nephew, Lot, was taken captive. He armed his 300 trained servants, uh, 318 trained servants. He wasn't a poor man. He had 318 personal servants, you see, who were uh, born in his own house. He must have had about a thousand altogether because 318 of them were young enough and strong enough to be in a little private army. He was a billionaire in modern terminology because God blessed this man. And he divided his forces against them by night and pursued them. So he brought back, notice verse 16, all the goods. Oh, was it just grains and fruits? Nope. Primarily it wasn't, brethren. It was all kinds of clothing that they ripped off, no doubt. Jewelry, things that they had stolen. I don't think they'd been interested in rotten fruit as they got it carried away and found it later on. He brought back all the goods and all his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And here, then Melchizedek, verse 18, king of Salem, which means king of peace. This was Jesus Christ, as most of you know, acting as a high priest even then. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought uh, up bread and wine. Here Christ came, and in a sense, Abraham, Abraham took a type of the Passover. He brought forth bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High, and he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, professor or possessor of heaven and earth. He recognized who this was. This man now was God. 
Melchizedek was the Word. He and the Father were in the beginning. In the beginning, there was one God, and He made all things. But then God said, that God said, as you know, in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Not me, but us. More than one. And so here, He said, blessed be Abram of the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So anyway, this was the great God speaking to Abraham here. And he, obviously in this case, Melchizedek gave him, uh, I'm sorry, Abram gave him, Melchizedek, tithe of all. So here's the example of tithing, the first example of tithing in the Bible. Tithing is just for the Jews, we thought. Where were the Jews then? There weren't any Jews. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was named Judah. And from Judah proceeded the Jews. So I think we understand. Judah was Abraham's great-grandson. There weren't any Jews. This was a law long before there were ever Jews. And Abram, or the father of the faithful, we say Abraham today, was tithing. Tithing to the God of Israel tithing to the Creator God, possessor of heaven and earth, because He was possessor of heaven and earth. What did He give God? There's no indication that He had a lot of grain and fruits lying around. He brought back the goods, no doubt a lot of clothing and, and uh, jewelry and stuff that they had ripped off these other kings as they charged off after kidnapping Lot and taking over these cities in this attack. So that's what He gave. He wasn't giving something he had earned just by raising some grains or raising some animals. Some of them might have been animals, but a whole bunch of goods. Again, some people say, well, I got this money from an inheritance, or I got this money from winning the lottery, or I got this money maybe some other way, and therefore uh, I don't have to tithe on it. Oh, really? How did Abraham get his money? Think about that. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Did he work all this time for a year or two to get this? No. God just gave him the victory, just like you would be given an inheritance or whatever, and God blessed him, and so Abram tithed. He gave him a tithe of all. I know that when my mother died and she left a certain amount of money to my sister, Mrs. Ames, and me, and I tithed on my part. I'm sure she did. It was just an honor to do so. My mother was not converted, and I knew she hadn't tithed it, so I tithed it. I didn't try to say, well, I've got to find some excuse around this. If you look for excuses not to obey God, do you want God for, to look for excuses not to let you in His eternal kingdom to live forever and ever and ever and give you a lesser position because your heart is really not right? Because you're looking for a way around, a way to get out? Because you're trying to lay up treasure in heaven or lay up treasure here on earth, I should say? This is the example of Abraham. He gave him tithes of all. Then you turn a little bit later here to Jacob. Remember throughout the Bible, I don't take time to turn to all of it, but most of you know this. What is God's name? He's not just named Yahweh, as some of the holy name people try to make it out to be. He's called quite often in the New Testament, the creator of everything that is. Don't mention Yahweh there. He's also called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, right? Over and over, he's called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they serve God. So in chapter 28, 
you see how Jacob here was on the way out, away from his family, and beginning to trust in God and, and trying to act on that knowledge. And so verse 18, Genesis 8, 28, 18, he rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head during that night alone and set it up as a pillar. We call it Jacob's pillar stone. I've seen that many times because of living in the British Isles, you know, and living right in London. They used to have it down in Westminster Abbey, and now they moved it up to Scotland. But a number of us have seen that, and perhaps that is the real thing. We don't know that, but it probably is where the ancient kings of Israel were crowned, or the kings of Judah crowned on that very uh, stone. And then it was moved to Ireland, and they were crowned, and then to Scotland, and then to England, and down to Westminster Abbey. And now the Scots have got it back up there again, perhaps temporarily, we don't know. But anyway, he called the name of the place Bethel. El, you know, is, the, is one of the names of God. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Bethel, house of God. And then Jacob made a vow, verse 20, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, will take care of my needs and watch over me, he said, then, he says, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the eternal shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. That's one reason we think that stone is very significant. There's a long story on that. You read Mr. Herbert Armstrong's old booklet and a lot of information about that. And of all that you have, or give me, not just that I get from a particular way, he didn't say that, just whatever you give me in my animals or whatever you give me in raising fruit or grain or something. He didn't limit it. Whatever you give me, he said, of all that you have given me, I will surely give you a tenth, a tithe. That's what I will do. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob puts this in his word as instruction for you and for me. He is that same God and his name is of course, God and also Jesus Christ today, whom we serve in this work of God. So remember, Abraham was the father of the faithful, and he set that example, and his son, of course, Jacob, the same way. Very, very important principle. All right, thinking again about Abraham's example, let's turn to Hebrews, if you would, chapter 7 in your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 7. It's a little complicated because as even, of course, the Apostle Paul said, I mean, the Apostle Peter said, excuse me, the last chap verse, last uh, chapter of his writing, Second Peter 3, Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. But follow me, and I think it's clear enough if you go through it carefully. Hebrews chapter 7, Paul is writing to the Jews who understood God's law overall and were familiar with these events. For this Melchizedek, he'd been talking about Melchizedek, mentioned here in Genesis, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, a tithe. First being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, because Salem means peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Melchizedek did not have a beginning. He did not have an end of life. He was God, obviously. He was the one who became Jesus Christ. 
made like the Son of God, because that's what he is today, remains a priest continually. How? Christ is our high priest, even today, right now. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes. See, that was a commandment, we know, under the Old Covenant from the people according to the law. And that is the law of, of the priesthood, the law of, uh, that they had at that time under the Old Covenant. In other words, God didn't have them give it to Melchizedek or an occasional special servant of God, but they gave it regularly to the priests at that time that is, their own brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Because, of course, the priests had to be, remember, descendants of Levi. They were all Levites. There were 12 tribes, 12 sons of, of uh, Jacob or Israel. One of them was named Judah. From him, the kingship was to come, the scepter. The other was, through, another was Levi, and the priesthood was to come through Levi. And another was Joseph who had two sons named Ephraim and Manasseh. And they were to get the birthright, the great national blessing that we have in this country and have shared with Canada and Britain and Australia and New Zealand and the brethren of South Africa up until recently who persecuted the blacks and much of their blessing is already being taken away. And in a sense, the tribulation is already starting on them when you understand. And I don't blame the blacks for that not all their fault. It's not anyone's fault directly, but certainly it is happening. And God allows these things to happen to teach us lessons. But anyway, that's already underway. But anyway, here was uh, Melchizedek uh, and uh, the priesthood, I should say. Uh, here was this uh, Melchizedek whose genealogy is not derived from them who received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So Melchizedek blessed Abraham who was the father of of the, the Levites. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed with the better. Here mortal men receive tithes. And when Paul wrote this book, brethren, he never refers to Jerusalem being uh, conquered or burned. So when he wrote this book, he talks, as you know, in a number of chapters that sacrifices were still ongoing. This book, Hebrews, was probably written around 62 to 65 A.D., a few years before the destruction somewhere in that area of time. So the mortal men were still receiving tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, which he did right then from the Jews at that time, paid tithes through Abraham, symbolically, but through his grandfather, in a sense, Paul says, he paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, it, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, which was just given as part of the law of Moses, was given for that time when they had a national religion, for under it the people received the law. What law? Well, they received the whole system of laws about sacrifices and washings, you know, and the priesthood law. Under it the people received that law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, uh-oh, the priesthood is now changed, Paul says. Does Paul in any way say the priesthood is done away? No. He says the priesthood is now changed. It's put again as the Melchizedek priesthood, obviously. There is of necessity a change of the law. 
And so that law was now changed where the, the, the tithe does not go to the Levites, but was to go to the Melchizedek priesthood. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. Melchizedek did not then as he came as a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, he was not born as a Levite. Jesus was a Jew. And nothing was said about Judah being a priest. Only Levi and his descendants were to be priests. So Jesus, born as a Jew, came from another tribe from which no man officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. So you need to understand what he's talking about here. He's talking about, of course, the priesthood, but he's talking about tithing as a law and how that law then is reverting right back to the Melchizedek priesthood. He in no way says that law is done away. So here, as complicated as it is, is a New Testament instruction regarding tithing. And we do need to understand. A far clearer instruction regarding tithing in the New Testament, not very long, but vitally important, dynamically important, is found, brethren, as many of you know, back in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, he's condemning the scribes and Pharisees and their traditions of men. And he says here uh, in verse 23, 2.23, Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe. See, there's nothing wrong with that. He said, you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, little tiny herbs that were of little importance as far as the huge crops of which they made. But they were so careful, they were paying tithe on the tiniest little herbs and spices. You're so careful, so nicey-nice in that. Like, you know, if you and I today would be given an ice cream cone by a friend and we say, well, I'd better figure out how much that ice cream cone cost and put an extra 25 cents in the offering plate or something to pay for my ice cream cone. They were very zealous, very picky about that. You, you do that and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, being really fair, mercy, having mercy to others. That's very important to God and faithfulness. If you check this word up, pistis, it's talking not just about faith in the sense of having faith in God, but faithfulness, as a lot of the commentaries bring out, faithfulness. For you're faithful to God in every way, and certainly one of them would be tithing, although he's not emphasizing that per se. But justice, mercy, and faithfulness, that's more important that you understand those big spiritual principles. These ought you to have done. He says to these spiritual leaders, religious leaders, back then, you got all picky and self-righteous about tithing on your ice cream cone or your little vegetables or little tiny herbs in your garden. You're so zealous and as I've said, brethren, in the days of unleavened bread time, some of our brethren are so zealous that they'll turn up every rug under every car and every bit of everything in case they could find one crumb, one crumb that might be leavened. And then they'll go back and cuss out their wife or beat their child or get drunk that night or do some other rotten thing that is far, far more important than finding one or two crumbs. Because the crumbs that might have a little leaven in them are only a tiny type of spiritual sin. The big lesson is not getting rid of every crumb. You want to do that, yes. But the important thing is to put sin out. 
So Jesus is saying, you get so picky, you get so nicey-nice about every little crumb here, a tithe on everything you've gotten down to the last detail, but you're neglecting the love of God. You're neglecting the great commandments that tell you how to love God and how to love your neighbors, having justice toward all men and mercy and faithfulness in the way you live your life. These ought you to have done. You ought to have done those big spiritual things. That's the most important thing. Without leaving the other undone. Don't leave the other undone. Who said that? The voice who said that said also from the top of Mount Sinai, I am the eternal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have no other gods before me. He is the one who gave the Ten Commandments. He is the one who led Israel out of Egypt. He is the one who died for you and me. He is the one who is our high priest, our coming king, our Lord. He says, don't leave the other tithing undone. Don't do that. That's from the Son of God. Let's figure that out. That's very important. And you brethren around the world, please understand that. Because a lot of people find so many excuses to water this down or they'll read some article trying to get into some little picky point. I'm not talking about picky point. I'm talking about great, big, huge examples here in the Bible. Turn back to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, if you would, brethren. John, chapter 4. And let's begin here, if you would, reading in verse 31. In the meantime, Christ's disciples urged him. He's talking to this uh, uh, woman here at the well. Rabbi, eat. He apparently missed his meal at lunch, and they said, you better eat something. But he said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's my purpose in life. I sometimes have neglected my family a little bit too much. I'll acknowledge that. My older children have got on my case occasionally that I didn't take them out and take them hiking and various things as much as I should have done. And I didn't do that quite as much as I should have done to my younger children. And I sometimes have done, should have done more and being more balanced. I know one of the ministers that I've known and loved, not with us, but a nice man said, well, Rod, you need a hobby. And he wanted me to get some other hobby. Well, my hobby is basically doing God's work. But I get enough change of pace in the trips I take and the things I do. I don't need to spend hours collecting stamps like this guy or other things like that. And I don't do the other perfectly either. I shouldn't talk about myself. I'm very weak. And I do not do it perfectly, but I try. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And brethren, I had a wonderful example set before me in that. Mr. Armstrong made lots of mistakes, as I said. But mistakes he did not make were turning away from God's Word. He says, I've tried to be faithful to God's Word. And he said, if all you fellows turn away and go some other way, he says, I'll just keep right on preaching the truth. And he meant it. He got right in our face about it. A lot more than I ever do any of you. He, he, was, he was not nice. He wasn't uh, at a ladies' tea party the way he talked to us. He meant it. And we knew he meant it. So his heart was in keeping God's Word, being faithful And also he said the same thing about God's work. If we quit doing God's work, then he would go right down the street and start all over, he said, and he would revive the work. And when the time came that I had to do that, being pressured out and told I was going to do nothing but sit in a rocking chair, I thought deeply, what would my mentor do? What would my human leader that I'd learned from do? 
It didn't take me long to figure it out. I knew what he would do. I didn't mean rereading for the second or third time his autobiography. I did what he did do. Went to go right down the street and start to revive the work of God. We've got to have our heart in that work. My food is to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, uh, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields, for they're already white to harvest. And he who uh, reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Eternal life at last forever and ever and ever. That both he and he who sows uh, may rejoice together. Yes, you do receive a reward. He who reaps receives wages. God will bless you and bless you in so many different ways if you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and put your heart in His work. And part of putting your heart in His work, of course, is giving generously of your offerings and paying a full tithe generously, not trying to grind it down to the lowest denominator you can figure out, but trying to see not how little you can give. Think about it. What would the Apostle Paul have done? What would the Apostle Peter have done? Would they try to see how little they could give? No, they would see how much they could give. With all our hearts, we serve our God. That's ought to be our attitude, brethren, not looking for the loose brick, not looking for some way around, because there isn't any really big biblical way around. I'm not afraid of finding someone. There isn't any. But people are always looking for that. Let's review the three big proofs, not little proofs, huge proofs. They're impregnable, can't be changed, won't be changed. First of all, the example of the father of the faithful. Abraham tithed not on just some vegetables or fruits. He tithed on the goods, on what God gave him, just like you would hate get even win the lottery, which you shouldn't be playing the lottery, but if you happen to get some big money some way or something from a relative or inheritance or whatever, any number of ways, and God blessed you, that's what Abraham was given. He was just given that victory. He knew he gave it. He honored God for giving him that victory and he paid tithes on that. Later on, God shows the tithes can be on your work and your produce of your field and your, your herds and all the rest too. But whatever you give to God, one-tenth plus generous offerings. The example of Abraham. That's a big example. That went way back before the Jews ever ever heard of way back before there was any old covenant and carries right on through. The second big example is that of Jesus Christ. He said, tithing ought not be left undone. Here is the Son of God. And in one way, that's the most important one of all. And then the most pointed one is the teaching of Malachi that God inspired Right at the end of the Old Testament, bridging obviously over into the time of the end when God will make us his jewels. And it tells us, will a man rob God? Would you dare rob the God that gives you life and breath? Please think about that, all of you brethren. I don't want to do that. I don't want any of you to do that for your good. Some of you can say, well, you want our money. No, God will give it some other way. He will, brethren. I know that. I've seen that through the years. But for your good, you need to have your heart in God's work and you'll be blessed. You will be blessed if you do that. And don't try to water it down and get out of it in some way. So this teaching that we had is so important of that. Let's turn back again then to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 
chapter 3, and here again he talks about uh, the time that I will come near to you for judgment in verse 4. And I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against he who perjures, and against those who turn away aliens because they do not fear me. People who do not fear God. And then he goes on and says, Return to me. And how do you return to him? From adultery or perjury or some rotten thing. And he puts this right in that same passage. You return to God by giving tithes and offerings. How have you robbed me in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse. And brethren, our whole nation is about to go bankrupt. There was an article that came out just a couple days ago that was sent to me from Britain. And the largest number of people I think ever are declaring bankruptcy over there because they've gotten over their heads, their mortgage is running out, and they're being dispossessed from their homes because the interest rates are going up there, the interest rates are going up here, and when the fat hits the fan on that, and they can't keep borrowing, you know, by mortgaging their home, by getting these extra uh, loans right out of their home, there are going to be tens of millions of people that will be kicked out of their homes. They've been living on borrowed money, and the the credit card companies charge 15 to 20% or more interest. You know, they will rip you off. They will destroy you. Don't do that. Don't keep wanting more material goods and more material goods. The debtor is servant to the lender. They are in charge of you and they can take your home. They can repossess your car. They can take everything you have in a sense. You'll be put in a terrible place if you keep living beyond your means. That's what we do here in America. Here in America, people are always trying to get on welfare and get this and that. They don't want to work and they'll sit around and not work and wonder why they're not well off. One of God's commands, the fourth command, command, six days shall you work. I'm 76 years old. I work. I don't sit around hoping someone will take care of me. Six days shall you work. And God then will take care of you. You work and do hard. Whatever you do, do with your might. So get a job if you don't have one, you brethren, around the world. Work hard at your job. Study to do the job better. To know your profession better. To be a leader in your profession. Do your part. And then don't run up great, huge credit card debts and other kinds of debts to where you're a slave to that huge interest <coughs> rate that you're going to have to pay. And keep all of God's commands as a way of life. To love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself and keep His Sabbath. Have a time of rest from your work. And then pay your tithe. God's not begging you. God's commanding you. You owe it to Him. He is your Creator. You're living on His earth, breathing His air. You pay your full tithe. And then you try to give generous offerings above and beyond. And then, with those things being done, God will bless you and bless you and bless you. That's what God wants to do. And brethren, these are three major things. The example of Abraham, the direct teaching of Jesus Christ, and this command at the end of the Old Testament for us not to rob God. We need to have our hearts in God's work as the end of this age approaches more than ever. We're involved in the greatest crusade in the history of the earth. There's nothing more important than this. If I die tomorrow, I mean that. I may not live to finish this. I've said that. I mean it. I'm not kidding. Nothing more important. God let Mr. Armstrong work until he died. I would like to work until I die. I don't want to die. I'd get on and sit in a wheelchair for the last five years. So I hope God allows that if I die. 
that the work must go on and you and I will be rewarded and rewarded and rewarded if we have our hearts in this work and want to reach out to these nations and reach our fellow man in this country and around the world. The good news of the coming government of God, God's way of life, the powerful Ezekiel warning to help them understand before the tribulation happens so they can come out and be protected and have God's blessing. So put your heart in God's work and in everything, try to get as close to God as you can. Not try to get out on the fringe, not try to do the least, but try to do the most. And then if we do that, brethren, you and I will qualify for a type of joy and peace and blessing and tremendous reward will go on forever and ever and ever. And we can be so grateful because we have put our heart in what really counts and tried to do it with all our hearts.